I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, Anglo-Irish poet David White shares new poems, humor, and an invitation to be vulnerable. What's the conversation I don't want to have? That's one of the best questions you can ask yourself, actually. As soon as you ask it, sincerely, bodily, fully, the door opens up to the very conversation that is inviting you to risk yourself. And later, how poetry has led White to some fascinating insights into the human condition. Management's a terrible word to use in leadership, you know, because it actually comes from the old Italian uh, medieval phrase, managari, which means the care and feeding of a horse. You know, so the, the whole feeling is getting on the back of reality, digging your knees in and heading it in a certain direction. The power of the written and spoken word. David White on his latest collection of poems, Still Possible. That's coming up on Life Examined. The art of the poem is the ability to interpret the unspeakable or untouchable through language. Emily Dickinson once said, quote, If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that it is poetry. But to be a poet in the modern day is a fraught proposition. Our attention spans are often spoken for, and poems are not made for skimming or scrolling. And this makes our guest, the poet and philosopher David White, something of a wonderful wise throwback. He's committed hundreds of poems, both his and others, to memory. Much of White's original work is centered around the idea of, quote, the conversational nature of reality. He draws from his own personal experiences, love of nature and walking, the importance of relationships, family, and marriage. His books include The Heart Aroused, Poetry and the Preservation of the Soul in Corporate America, and The Three Marriages, Reimagining Work, Self, and Relationship. His latest collection of poems is titled Still Possible. Well, David White, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. In the spirit of of taking a journey together, I, I thought maybe we should start with the first poem from your book, For the Road to Santiago. It seems to kind of be aligned to some of the things we may talk about. Do you, would you like to read that for us? Yes, it is a, it is a poem for setting off, too, so uh, aptly called uh, For the Road to Santiago. Of course, that's referring to that uh, contemporary pilgrimage that so many people are taking uh, across northern Spain to Santiago de Compostela. It's an ancient Catholic uh, pilgrimage, but it's become ecumenical, and uh, Mm -hmm. it's a marvelous kind of invitation for everyone of every persuasion and even no persuasion at all to take that walk. So a lot of people understand this reference to Santiago uh, in today's world. So I thought I'd take a chance and use it in the title as a, as representing um, a a place beyond, you know, the horizon. Um, Mm. Everyone has a horizon in their life. And uh, so this is, this is about setting off for the road to Santiago for the road to Santiago don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind for the road to Santiago don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind bring what you have bring what you have you're always going that way anyway you're always going there all along you talked about this idea of each of us having some kind of a horizon that we, 
we tend to, to move towards or grasp towards. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, you could, you could say, Jonathan, that the, um, the conversation that everyone carries is between the ground upon which they stand, you know, which you could take as their everyday, where are you now? It's two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, um, or where they are imaginative, imaginatively in their life, or physically where they are in their life, if you're in Seattle or Yorkshire or Kathmandu. And the conversation the human holds is between the place they think they are and the place to which they think they're going. And the place to which they think they're going is almost always not at the horizon, but over it. It's beyond, there's always a sense that it's, it's beyond my ken, it's beyond what you can fully uh, apprehend. And uh, so I do talk about the conversational nature of reality, and this could be one of the most essential conversations a human being holds between ground and horizon. And of course, what's what's at the horizon, just as you say, is is something we fill with some kind of potent energy or hope or something that is more miraculous that's than what's right in front of us. Yes, a good story um, that is worth uh, worth partaking in. Um, a story that makes you larger. And human beings have always made stories for themselves. Um, and whether they're true or not, if they make you larger, if they make you more generous, if they make you more here, um, it seems, you know, if you're looking at the historical record, it seems to have been a good thing to do. Um, we make meta stories. You know, we find out that the story is only partially true along the way. We find out that we are only partially true. The name we gave ourselves uh, was not large enough for for what you trip over into and trip up into, um, what you break down into, uh, what you enlarge yourself into, and in many of the uh, uh, Welsh mythologies, what you uh, what you reduce yourself to in the sense of um, a, an imaginative disappearance, where you reappear as something else. Yeah. So it's the it's that ancient journey, uh, the place I know here, which I don't really know fully. Actually, when I when I'm when I'm walking towards the horizon, I equally have to anchor myself more deeply where I am in order. And and the more uh, grounded I am in the place I am, the more real, strangely, that the horizon becomes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could see that I, I just immediately thought of a marriage where where, you know, marriages thrive on a shared horizon, on shared thoughts, shared imagination. Um, but if it's not anchored deeply in the everyday and everyday generosity towards, towards each other in an everyday life, then the horizon can mean nothing at all. And in fact, you can become distrustful of manufactured horizons. So this strange, uh, this strange and ancient dynamic of setting off on a pilgrimage, on a journey towards a horizon you've made for yourself or with another, and strangely enough, having to drink from a deeper well, having to find a deeper foundation, whatever metaphor you'd like to use. Yeah. 
it's interesting thinking about the history of of humans wanting to wander to to go places and uh here we're, we're using the word pilgrimage which is one that i love as well but you're somebody i know that that loves to walk and loves to think what what do you find so powerful about about those experiences well, from a very practical point of view, I found from when I was quite young that walking energized me and it energized not only my physical body, but my thinking, my imagination. And when I started writing seriously, um, I mean, I've, I, I wrote since I was six or seven years old, actually, but I, I started to become a serious young man in the north of England of an Irish mother and a Yorkshire father at 13. And I started to write poetry uh, very seriously and most of it was composed walking at night actually on night walks and I just found that my my imagination came alive and I would just memorize the lines as I went along I was quite amazed to find many years later that uh, William Wordsworth did exactly the same thing Uh, except William had his sister to dictate it to when he got back and she would write it out fair yeah so Dorothy Wordsworth (laughs) but um Yes, so I think walking. I think walking from an evolutionary point of view is just really good for us. It's like, it's like the color blue in the sky, or the green, or the the first aroma of spring. We're made to walk, and unless you're debilitated through illness, walking is 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 second nature nature to us. It's uh, it's um, an accompaniment uh, that makes sense. Uh, of all our other endeavors, actually, I think. Um, on my walking tours that I lead, we we have our poetry and and uh, intellectual and imaginate, imaginative stimulus in the morning and conversation. But then we go out and we walk for five, six, seven hours. And there's something about that, that companionship of the body coming alive with the mind it leads to remarkable conversations with whoever you are you have with you as a companion on your walk but it also uh, leads to a really i think a really rich internal conversation with that uh, stranger uh, you're getting to know uh, you call yourself and then you have a marvelous appetite in the evening for food and drink which is always <laughs> and if you're walking in italy <laughs> or ireland that's a great a good appetite is a great thing to take into the uh, the uh, trattoria or into the into Margaret's pub in Ballywochen in County mm-hmm. Clare. So, yeah. yeah, and I know you have. Speaking of nighttime here too, I, I I'm always curious when and how one composes, and I know that you've even talked or written about the difference of writing in the evening or when it's just sheer darkness around you versus the day. Yes, exactly. I think, you know, there's there's a reason for the hours the, uh, are the, of the offices in the monastic tradition, you know, for men and women religious. Uh, there were different prayers for different times of the day and every religious and contemplative tradition has recognized this that you're actually a different person and it's probably because you're conversing with a different horizon when I wrote um, when I wrote the house of belonging so many years ago I was writing that at an upstairs desk in a corner uh, 
uh, on the landing at the top of the stairs. And, uh, and uh, there was a window by my side. And uh, um, as I started to finish the book, and as usual, I was work- working all the, I was writing and working all the hours, God sends, uh, alternating between writing and gardening. And I did notice that there was a completely different conversation at night when it was dark outside. I was, I realized I was actually writing to a different form of invitation. And it was an invitation from the darkness, from the core of what you would call the unknown. And, uh, and that there was a certain tiredness of the lighted hours that you're, you needed in order to look into that horizon. So I wrote a, I wrote a poem called Sweet Darkness, which is, is a hymn to the night, really. It's a praise to what you cannot see and what you cannot recognize. And it's certainly needed now as we try to emerge from this pandemic. You know, it's, we're uh, half in and half out. We're, we're, uh, we're wondering what possibly can be possible right now. <laughs> And and, uh, the whole of life feels like this very, very extraordinary experiment, sometimes a dark experiment too. So this is a hymn to the unknown, uh, praise of not knowing really. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. Sweet darkness. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. It's time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. It's time to go in to the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Now, almost always we've, if something's too small for us, we've often, we've quite often contributed uh, and made that person or that landscape or that dwelling or that work too small for us. And so sometimes as a parent, even my own children don't bring me alive and, and sometimes quite the opposite. <laughs> so mm. I, I, it's a great discipline, a great question, a way of digging deeper, drinking from a deeper well to say, how have I made my own child too small for me? Yeah. Which means I'm making them small for themselves too. You know? How have I made my, my marriage, um, uh, my work, too small for me or even what name am I giving myself that's too small for the extraordinary life that I'm actually at the center of 
Hmm. And it's interesting how in that poem, the the kind of expansive, ineffable quality of life comes about when one can't see or one can't touch limitations or put words together in, in the light as we see it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, poetry is about the, um, about the untouchable and the unspeakable and, and making it surprisingly sayable and being astonished as, as it said, and part of the power of the language comes from that sense of astonishment, uh, in describing, uh, this sudden contact with an understanding you did not have until you spoke it. Yeah. What is that strange part of of the human that that tends to want to make things smaller, to reduce a marriage into something simple, to reduce a friendship or a landscape? What what is that? Well, I suppose it's literally so we feel we can handle it, um, and by handling it, we mean control it really. And it's always a bad sign when you're trying to manage something. Management's a terrible word to use in leadership, you know, because it actually comes from the old Italian uh, medieval phrase, managare, which means the care and feeding of a horse, you know. So the, the whole feeling is getting on the back of reality, digging your knees in and heading it in a certain direction, you know, which doesn't work very well in, a, in an intimate relationship. <laughs> but it doesn't work well with ourselves either. You know, the most difficult conversation to have is the one with the stranger looking back at you in the mirror in the morning. And uh, I often say, if you spoke to other people the way you speak to yourself, uh, you would never have another friend in your life. Um, it's all about coercion. It's all about improving yourself. Yeah. I'm really interested. You know, I'm interested in the conversational nature of reality. Therefore, I'm really in interested in how a human being makes an invitational identity because all conversations are really based on invitation. Someone there to invite, someone there to be invited out of themselves, deeper into themselves, into the life between yourself and the other person, into a shared work. Yeah. And uh, um, so the the ability to give up handling, give up managing, and give yourself over to this, this uh, first of all fearful experience that we call vulnerability. Yeah. But vulnerability, you know, it really comes from the, the Latin word for wound. It means really where you're open to the world, whether you want to be or not. So we'll often close down the joy we feel with our children because we don't know what to do with that astonishing opening. And we also unconsciously don't know what to do if we, we wouldn't know what to do if we lost them. Yeah. So the full physical experience of joy always comes with its corollary of understanding that you'll have to let them go. Yeah. You'll either have to let them go metaphorically in your life, you know, or let them go out the house when they go off to work or to college. Uh, 
Um, but you've actually, you might have to ultimately let them go too. And I think a full, untrammeled, unguarded sense of joy with another person or with a child of your own yeah, is so close to that sense of, oh my God, we're only here for the briefest miracle moment. Yeah, and I'll have to give them away. Either I'll go or they'll go. Yeah. So I, it, that closing down, I think, has to do in, in, in strangely, it's a compliment to life, I think. And it's a compliment to the unconscious depth of love that we actually feel. So it's really, I often think that one of the greatest things you could do as a person, greatest practice is apprentice yourself to your own reluctance. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <clears throat> we all have our own particular specific form of reluctance when you think about it. And even the most, even the most, um, you know, positive thinking entrepreneur has secret, secret cargoes of reluctance inside them. And it's that reluctance that's actually, actually, when explored, will lead us to that doorway of vulnerability. Yeah. What's the conversation I don't want to have? Yeah. That's one of the that's one of the best questions you can ask yourself actually. What's the conversation I don't as soon as you ask it sincerely, bodily, fully, the door opens up to the very conversation that is inviting you to risk yourself. Yeah. If you're just joining us, my guest is poet David White, and we'll be back with part two of our conversation in just a moment. But first. Hello, Andrea Brody here, producer of KCRW's Life Examined, with a big thank you to all of you for your support and listenership this past year. Just a quick reminder, if you enjoy our shows, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and share some of your favorites. We have some really great interviews lined up for 2023, so keep tuning in. And in the meantime, all my very best wishes for a wonderful holiday season and a healthy and happy new year. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll continue now with our conversation with poet and philosopher David White. Born and educated in the UK to an Irish mother and an English father, White currently lives in the Pacific Northwest. He's traveled extensively, and much of his work tracks the close relationship of the outdoors to history. Inspired by the works of Wordsworth, Emily Dickinson, and Pablo Neruda, White also credits the significant influence of the late Irish philosopher John O'Donohue and Zen master Dogen Zenji. We'll pick up our conversation right where we left off and hear White's reflection on death and the inspiration for his latest collection of poems called Still Possible. It's reminding me of um, 
of this experience I had watching this really astonishing documentary on the BBC, which really in many ways began this whole new cycle of poetry in this new book, Still Possible. And that was uh, uh, watching a, a BBC documentary called Brotherhood, The Inner Life of Monks. And it looked at the only the only Trappist monastery in uh, in Britain, actually, and uh, uh, and uh, it looked uh, at the way they were both aging. Um, half the population of monks were in their eighties, but also trying to rejuvenate themselves, and they were starting a brewery um, right. in the best Trappist fashion. And so it's quite fascinating between this this quite jolly this quite jolly enterprise of starting a brewery and looking at the life and death and the offices of prayer of the monks through through a year. And it the documentary starts with this very powerful deathbed scene. I mean a literal deathbed scene. It's not a dramatized deathbed scene, it's the deathbed of one of the monks. And it was a tribute to his openness that he was willing to be interviewed on that deathbed. And in his some of his last words, he says, you know, I gave up praying years ago. And when I heard that, it was such a strong statement. I thought, oh, if he, he became cynical, he gave up, you know. Uh, but no, he said, I gave up praying years ago because actually my whole life became a prayer I was living and breathing from the atmosphere of prayer so there was actually there was absolutely no need to actually make prayers yeah his life was a prayer yeah. mm. and I was absolutely stunned by that phrase it was so beautiful and so honest and and it had caught me you know in my own defenses in a way and the next image is of the man in his coffin surrounded by his fellow monks praying and singing the Gregorian chant and the officers over him it was absolutely astonishing so I wrote this uh, I wrote this piece it's called your prayer and it's about it's about that giving up of trying to manage or handle life you know and and we even try to of course handle handle praying we try to manage our praying if we are if we're religious yeah and uh so this is uh this is your prayer and this is the image you can think of this uh this monk on his deathbed uh this is who the poem was written for your prayer only began with words each one you realize just a hand on the door to silence your prayer only began with words, each one you realize just a hand on the door to silence. Even in your gathered strength, what you said in the end was only a shoulder against the grain of wood trying to keep the entrance open. Mm -hmm. Until that door, which had been no door at all, gave in to necessary grief which is really only the full understanding of what you were missing all along, which is really just that vulnerability you needed to make a proper invitation, which is really just you 
admitting the full depth of your love at last. The heart, broken heart, coming to heartfelt rest. The opening inside you, now filled to the gleaming brim and casting its generous beam. The part of you you thought was foolish, the wisest voice of all. The part of you you thought was foolish, the wisest voice of all. The, uh, I, I, I'm so struck by, by so much in that poem, but also still sitting with the image of the monk dying and this, this idea of, of a threshold crossing between that of, of speech, of prayer, of thinking versus moving to a space of fully becoming something. And I, I, I'm kind of fascinated in how that can pertain to different parts of our life or as a way of being. I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I mean, you can imagine being on the deathbed. And, and I have sat by many deathbeds, too, of friends mm-hmm. and family going. And there's always a sense, there's always a sense of, of this incredible briefness to existence that... Mm-hmm. You were just you just come in really and mm-hmm. and you're on your way out already. And who was here? Yeah. And where were you generous? And where were you not? And my sister, my sister Jane, uh, who's a hospice matron in a care home, she uh she sat by the deathbeds of hundreds of hundreds of people. And as you as you've probably heard, you know, it's always it's always what you didn't do rather than what you did. Your sins were were sins of omission. It's it's where you didn't give. Uh, it's where you didn't risk yourself. It's where you you didn't go out the door. Yeah. Uh, it's where you didn't appreciate. You didn't look. You didn't see. You didn't hear. You didn't sing. You didn't dance. You. Uh, it's it's the sense of letting the tide go by you. So um, I thought, you know, the the power of the monk's recollection was that it was it was still true for them for him. So obviously, he was just prayer that was now about to move completely into silence. I know in in your work and from the story you told, for example, about about the monastery or the way that you'll reference uh, Meister Eckhart or uh, all these in- incredible figures that are that are religious figures, spiritual figures, uh, your close relationship with the incredible poet John O'Donohue of Ireland, that th- there's some fascination you carry with you about these traditions, these ideas, even if you may not call yourself a Catholic or a Christian. But I I wonder about that impulse in you and how it finds its way out in its in your work. Well, you know, um, if you take away the language of religion and you take away the glamour of 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 enlightenment and uh, insight, all of these people are just great conversationalists. Actually, hmm. um, they know how to uh, make contact with something other than themselves or somebody other than themselves. Yeah. And uh, um, they, they're, 
they're willing to risk themselves. Yeah, And, you know, when Dogen Zenji, the great Zen teacher, says, if you go out and confirm the 10,000 things, if you name everything, you know, and say, oh, that's the way everything is, yeah, and this belongs over there and that belongs there and they belong together and this doesn't belong and you don't belong, but you belong and you're A and you're B and you're 2 plus 2 and you're 3 plus 5. This is delusion. This is delusion. If the 10,000 things come and confirm you, this is enlightenment. Well, in other words, if you are silent enough, intentional enough, attentive enough, present enough, you will be named by the world, actually. But it's a name that is not your normal name, actually. It's more like... It's more like water disappearing. It's more like a flow that you're going to go with. You're going to go down river, down into the well, uh, into something else. And so, um, so really, what Dogen Zenji's description of enlightenment there um, is really just the description of what a real conversation is. In the kitchen... Uh, with your Im- intimate other, whether you're married or not, you know, but you're committed, uh, your ability to let them come and find you instead of always giving them names. Yeah. We use nicknames for people we love and, they're, and they're, they're signals of affection, but they're also ways of controlling the other person too. Uh, I give you a nickname which, which highlights one facet of you. In other words, it's a facetious name. <laughs> and mm-hmm. sure. and uh, it's my way of holding you in place, actually. You know, the, there's a kind of shyness we feel uh, at the beginning of a relationship. Uh, when you first meet a person, you don't know where to put yourself, what to say or what to wear, you know. Um, but there's another form of shyness that you meet deeper in the relationship that in many ways is harder to get beyond, and that's the shyness you've generated in the defenses of the everyday. And uh, so the ability to step beneath that shyness and step into a real conversation with someone you know very, very well is one of the great challenges of marriage, of relationship, and of deep friendship. Mm-hmm. my willingness to give away my understanding of you and to give away your practicality in my life yeah so i can actually i can actually come at least a little to terms with the essence of your of yourself yeah which can never be named yeah and strangely enough is is not it's not a part that can be friends with everyone anyone else yeah to love the part of the person that is not interested in loving you this is probably one of the the most difficult fences we have to leap you know in 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 getting on in a relationship getting beyond the the little prisons we make for ourselves mm-hmm. it was interesting because initially when I asked you about 
how questions of of religion or spirituality showed up it it, it seems to bring us to this point again here which is either the smallness of things or the grand unknowable aspect of things. And there seems to be some interrelationship between how you talk about, say, a marriage or one's conception of, of spirituality or something larger. Is that, is that, could that be true too? Um, yes, I think, um, you know, ha- having grown up in a household with a, a very Irish mother, um, she didn't like the church at all because of uh, of the cruelty with which they treated her family in Ireland. And um, I mean, my mother's story is part of the bad old uh, Irish Catholic Church story, which is still being revealed. Um, and so my mother actually fled from the clutches of the church when she was 15 years old to the north of England. But she was still an an osmotically Irish Catholic. You know, she was, (laughs) you can take the girl out of Ireland, but you couldn't take Ireland out of the girl. And and so she had this ancient Irish woman's pagan Catholicism, which was really, really powerful, you know. And it was accompanied with this astonishing bird of paradise linguistic ability, you know. And then on the other side of the house, you had my father, who spoke in uh, in early Yorkshire vowels. And as they say in Yorkshire, they say, say nothing until they say everything. It's all concentrated into one sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father uh, was from uh, the nonconformist uh, or, you know, chapel going, non-Church of England, uh, very austere, uh, uh, tradition. He'd given it up, but he was he still had it in him. So I grew up in the conversation between two radically different stories with two radically different articulations of the stories. And you couldn't help but just gain a sense of humor about it. You know, All human beings are trying to establish themselves in this world through the best story they can find. Yeah. And our great our great dark side as human beings is we feel we have to take the whole story uh, and everything that goes with it. You know, and if you if you criticize one part of the story, you're undermining the whole story. Well, it's because the people who are running the story and are making their living from it and have got their power centers from it are have made sure throughout time that you take everything they give you. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with the way human beings make a magpie patchwork, you know, weave reality from all the bits and bobs and odd rag ends that they find, you know. And every now and again, you find a wonderful golden thread to run through the nest, you know, but it's your nest, you put it together. Um, there's a there's a parable in the Irish tradition of St. Kevin praying and praying in the old Irish way, not with his hands together, but with his hands out and his palm is upturned by the chapel window. And a passing blackbird looks down and says, that would be a great old place to perch. You know, So the blackbird alights on the upturned hand of St. Kevin. And, and, and Kevin, being the Irish St. Francis and having a terrible sympathy for animals and birds, he... Uh, he decides he has to keep praying while this bird is resting. 
But doesn't the bird look around and say, this will be a great place to build a nest? So so the bird starts, starts hithering and thithering and bringing back pieces of wool from fences and and pieces of cloth and twigs and leaves and making a nest. So Kevin has to keep praying while the nest is made. Yeah, Finally, the nest is finished. But then, of course, doesn't the blackbird lay an egg in the nest? Yeah. So Kevin has to keep praying. And then, of course, isn't there a chick in the nest when the, when the egg hatches? Yeah. Kevin keeps praying. Uh, as the mother feeds the chick, and finally there's a fledgling and mother and daughter fly off into wild blue, blue yonder and and Kevin can carefully put his hands together with the nest. <laughs> and, uh, of course it's a it's a metaphorical story it's an apocryphal story but it's actually incredibly uh, precise from a psychologically psychological point of view you know the way uh First of all, the way prayer and meditation takes patience. Yeah. Right. When you feel you have it, you haven't yet. Actually, it's all knitting together. It's all being nested. Yeah. And the fact that all of these, a nest is made from whatever is available. Yeah. And it becomes your shelter. I had a few lines in a poem uh, called Coleman's Bed about a contemporary of where, uh, where I refer to Kevin without mentioning him and I say make a nesting now a place to which the birds can come make a nesting now a place to which the birds can come think I do mention Kevin think of Kevin's prayerful palm holding the blackbird's egg and be the one looking out from this place who warms interior forms into light make a nesting now a place to which the birds can come. Think of Kevin's prayerful palm holding the blackbird's egg and be the one looking out from this place who warms interior forms into light. Very, that's exactly how I feel when I'm sitting. I mean, I sit in the Zen form because that's the one I learn, but it, whatever your mode of silence is, that's exactly how I feel, like I'm, I'm making a nesting. Yeah. It's a nest to which the birds can come, to which all of reality can come and 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 help build it and and lay an egg in it and things can grow in it. That's it's as if my body is a nest. Yeah. So um, and it's made from all kinds of uh, of bits and bobs. Yeah. I love that. It, it, that poem made me think so clearly about another great Irish poet, Seamus Heaney, who, who wrote of Ke- St. Kevin and the Blackbird too. He wrote, a prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the riverbank, forgotten the river's name. Oh, so, well done. Yeah, remembering that. And uh, yeah, Heaney's poem really concentrates on what it felt like for... Um, for Kevin to put his hands together, yeah, mm. after holding them out so long for so long, yes, yeah. Was there ever a moment in your life, a threshold, where there was a certain poem that that came to you that you needed that you could remember? It might have been someone else's. So many poems, yeah. Um, uh, Rilke's poetry was a great help to me going through dark periods in my early thirties, yeah. 
and uh, it is possible I am pushing through solid rock as the ore lies alone. I am such a long way in, I can see no way through and no space. Everything is close to my face, and everything close to my face is stone. I don't have much knowledge yet in grief, so this darkness makes me feel small. You be the master. Break in. Make yourself fierce. And then your great transforming will happen to me, and my great grief cry will happen to you. That's that's Robert Bly's brilliant translation of of Rilke. And that was a very, very powerful poem, along with the whole cohort of other Rilke poems uh, translated by Bly and by others, and some of them I translated myself. But uh, So Rilke was a great companion to me uh, for a good few years. Uh, Gary Snyder was a local poet here called Robert Sund. Um, Emily Dickinson, you know, when you're feeling alone and lonely. You can always think of Emily Dickinson, who, who invited millions of people in the future into her very private life <laughs> in this little house in New England. Um, so, yes, yeah, I've been gifted by poetry and I'm trying to give a little back. It's interesting how you said in the, there's a certain almost, I feel now, freedom in which you feel you can express yourself, that there's an old David White that doesn't have to show up anymore. And with that comes a certain boundlessness or something something new, it sounds like, even in, in an older age. Yes. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, there's, I think, every, I think every new epoch of, uh, of life comes with a certain form of innocence that's necessary to it. So the innocence you'd feel at the beginning of your 60s would be different than the innocence you felt in your 20s, but it's still just as powerful as an innocence that you need. Uh, you know, one of the awful dynamics of, uh, of people supposedly maturing is, and this is a great uh, shadow of the masculine psyche, is, is the person who knows how everything goes down. They know how the game is played. You can't surprise them. Uh, uh, Why? Because the cynic has all the power. Mm. They want the power to be able to say, it doesn't matter. I'm not surprised. I'm, 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 uh, you will not entice me out of myself. Yeah. So all of us have that reluctant part of us somewhere inside us. Yeah. So we have to build a sense of humor around that person. Uh, we have to build a bigger flow uh, so that they're just like a rock that creates a beautiful pattern as the river flows around them, actually. And, and the ability to know that part of yourself inside allows you to have some compassion for others who are experiencing it too. You know, it's their last rearguard action actually against changing and many of them carry that rearguard action right to their deathbed of course for decades but it will still have to fall apart and disappear when they go so why wait why mm. wait i'm struck by your use of the word innocence as somebody reaches their 60s or 70s or even the word humor as as you put in there too with the cynic well, I've always said that innocence is not a state of naivety. Uh, 
innocence is your ability to be found by the new world in which you now live yeah mm. uh, and without innocence you you're under the illusion that you're still in your old world but innocence allows you to look at the world as if you've seen it for the first time well david what i've enjoyed so much of this conversation i i wonder if there's any last poem that that comes to mind from your new collection that would be a fitting place for us to to say goodbye there's always there's always a last poem jonathan mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh this is um we started with um uh, for the road to santiago this is called beyond santiago and this was written this was written for that monk again in a way written for myself written for anyone who's going to have to say goodbye beyond santiago death death is so simple death is so simple one moment you are alive and then you are not and that fear you carry with you might be equally as simple too that you'll never have the time to accomplish what you wish but stop a moment now before the way beyond and let me tell you this stop a moment now before the way beyond and let me tell you this you will go out of this life however untimely having accomplished every single thing you wish you will arrive in that night like a newborn child welcomed by loving arms you will go out of this life however untimely having completed every single thing you wished you will arrive in that night like a newborn child welcomed by loving arms you will find in that long anticipated enemy the ultimate form of forgiveness and friendship every fearful goodbye suddenly become a gentle getting to know a getting to know of a forgiveness that was strangely always anticipated a welcome and a full understanding of all you ever did everything you gave and everything you were given and then everything you could never give everything you could never give and above all everything you could never bring yourself to receive everything you could never bring yourself to receive those unattainable distances that always broke your heart and the gifted understanding of why it was so hard to love the gifted understanding of why it was so hard for you to love and then and most importantly and right to the heart everything you were and everything you gave that was never ever on your list everything you were and everything you gave that was never ever on your list David White's poet and author of the new collection still possible I I'm grateful for this hour and for sharing some uh, some of this journey with you thank you for your time Thank you very much Jonathan uh, it's been a pleasure thank you for the the invitational conversation I think we got to some places 
All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. We'd love to keep the conversation going on our Facebook group, where we have a goal of getting to 1,000 members by the end of the year, and we are almost there. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon.